0: What can we learn about pioneer America from the life of Laura Ingalls Wilder? Caroline Fraser will be here to talk about her new biography, Prairie Fires. Just how different was slavery in the city of Detroit from the well-known form of slavery in the American South? Ty Miles will join us to talk about her new book, The Dawn of Detroit. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we here at The Book Review are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Caroline Fraser joins us now from Santa Fe, New Mexico. She is the author of Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder, reviewed this week on our cover. Caroline, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So this is a very ambitious book because it's not only a biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder, it's also about the books that she wrote and also really about the time and place in America when she lived and and that legacy. Was this a project long in the making?
1: Yes. I mean, I've, I've been writing about Wilder for a while, but the thing that really sparked this biography was when I edited the Library of America's edition of the Little House Books, which gave me the opportunity to to revisit the books and write notes on the texts and write a chronology of of wilder's life and And the number of these notes that I wrote just made me think about how Wilder's life was connected to American history and how she represented, as she once said, a whole period of American history, everything from Manifest Destiny to the Plains Indian Wars and very essential aspects of American farming. And so many of those historical events that I sort of investigated for those notes were so fascinating that I just didn't want to stop.
0: What's the period that we're talking
1: about? What year was Wilder born? She was born in 1857 and lived for 90 years until 1957, so she really covers everything from the covered wagon era to, you know, she actually flew in a plane at the very end of her life.
0: And she didn't start writing these books that were largely about her childhood until 1929 when she was 62 years old.
1: Yes, she was in her 60s, but she had actually served a fairly long apprenticeship as a farm columnist for a popular rural newspaper called the Missouri Ruralist, and she was one of their star columnists who wrote uh, about women's issues and gave advice to women, and she began exploring a lot of her memories about her childhood in those columns.
0: When we talk about the Little House books, the one that I think most people think of is Little House on the Prairie, which, of course, then became the name of a television show in America in the 1970s. But what are the books? How many of them are they? Which is the first book? Where does it end?
1: The series was eight volumes which were published during her life, And they began with a book that was designed really for somewhat younger children called Little House in the Big Woods. And then they proceed through her childhood, and she she ages, you know, till the series ends with her marriage. And there's one volume, Farmer Boy, that was about her husband, Almanzo Wilder, and his childhood but there was a ninth volume the the manuscript was found in her papers and it was published sometime after she died and that volume is really interesting because it covers the first 4 years of her marriage which were really kind of a disaster in terms of the you know number of catastrophes that that happened to this you know little family the crop failures they lost a child their house burned down and it's a fascinating kind of key to the way in which the books were created because it's sort of the raw material. Uh, It's an unedited manuscript, so you can see how she worked by looking at that manuscript.
0: And was that published as a separate volume, and under what title?
1: It's called The First Four Years, Mm -hmm. and it was published in the 1970s.
0: I want to go back to Farmer Boy you mentioned, which is kind of a little bit of an outlier in that it is about Almanzo, his childhood, the man who became her husband later on. Because in the edition, which you edited, I think it comes in as book number two or three. Was that because it was written in in that chronological order? Or what was the idea of putting it in the middle there?
1: It actually was the second book to be published. Mm -hmm. And when you look at Farmer Boy next to Little House in the Big Woods, you can kind of see that they were almost bookends. You know, they were covering the early childhood of these two figures. And she wasn't, I think, quite ready to write Little House on the Prairie until she'd kind of covered that period. And Farmer Boy actually gave her quite a lot of trouble. I think she found it very difficult to write about an experience that was not her own, even though her husband was clearly giving her a lot of details. Mm -hmm. But her daughter, actually, her daughter Rose Wilder Lane, who was herself a writer and a journalist, ended up going to Malone, New York, where he had grown up in order to see the farmhouse there to add kind of a sense of place to that book. And it's a really interesting book in some ways because it sort of introduces Rose's view of the farmer as an American hero.
0: I want to get to Rose in a little while because she's such an interesting character in her own right and uh, obviously a person with very strong political views. But let's go back to Laura's real story, the story of her life. When did she move out to the West? Who was her father, Charles? and, And what was their experience there?
1: Well, it's, it's funny to think about Laura in the West because, of course, she never really made it to the, what we now think about as the West Coast. She didn't travel on the overland trails, but her father, Charles Ingalls, who, who was born and spent the first few years of his life in New York State, was used to this very kind of peripatetic existence where he tried to make a living off of hunting and trapping on the one hand and farming on the other hand. And those two pursuits were not really compatible always because as a hunter and trapper, you wanted a a land that was pretty unpopulated. But if you were trying to grow a wheat crop that was going to make you a lot of money, which was his other ambition, then you needed to be close to a railroad. So he was always kind of searching for the perfect place. And Laura would be born, Laura and her older sister, Mary, would be born in Pepin, Wisconsin, which is right on the banks of the, the Mississippi River across from Minnesota. They then went to Kansas, where they squatted on Indian land. That didn't work out so well, mm-hmm. famously. They go back to Wisconsin, then to Minnesota. They had a, a very sort of strange, dark period in Iowa, and back to Minnesota, and eventually during the Dakota boom, which was another major event that they were part of, they end up out on the prairies in Dakota Territory.
0: And all of this is depicted in the Little House books?
1: Well, not quite all of it, and the chronology was changed mm-hmm. because when, when Laura wrote the first book, Big Woods, she started... With herself at, at the, the age of five, and mm-hmm. the Kansas period had actually occurred before that, mm-hmm. uh, when she was younger. So, so the whole chronology of her experience got changed, which had some very interesting effects on the storytelling. How so? Well, because she, when she gets to the the little house on the prairie. Then she's, she's depicted as older than she really was mm-hmm. and more cognizant of what was happening. That's interesting because when you see the world of Kansas, you know, and, the, and this Indian country, as she called it, through her eyes, you're kind of experiencing that from a different perspective than she has in, in Big Wood. Mm-hmm. How much of the
0: perspective in these books is Laura and how much is Rose and is it possible to untangle them?
1: I don't think it's always possible to untangle them, but if you read enough of both of them in terms of their letters and their manuscript, you do get a very strong sense of their individual voices. Mm -hmm. Laura's voice tends to be much more direct and plain and just very close to her experience, Uh, whereas Rose has a much more commercial um, sense, and she also, I think, added a lot of the, the kind of warmth and the repartee that you find mm-hmm. in the Little House books. I think she was kind of the master at doing dialogue. Because she had such an.
0: they had a very interesting writing arrangement. Describe how—what their process was like, the two of them.
1: Yes, well, Laura would sit down with her, her famous, you know, five-cent tablets from the, the drugstore and a cheap pencil— and she would write the manuscripts out longhand. And I think that she did this over and over again. In other words, she didn't just write one manuscript. She wrote it, she read it, and then she started revising it. And so she would, she would rewrite it and add to it. And at the very beginning, you can see that she doesn't have much of a sense of how to structure a novel and she doesn't have a lot of dialogue, and so it all comes out sort of in one piece. And Rose, at the beginning, would take these lo- these manuscripts and, and introduce the structure. She would create chapters, she would create scenes within those chapters, and she began kind of teaching her mother how to do this. So by the end, you can see that Laura has learned quite a bit about how to create chapters, and she's doing that from... From the, the beginning.
0: Let's go back again to what, what was happening to her real life and the experience they had. Charles Ingalls, these were not successful pioneers. They, they did not end up owning a profitable farm. How did that all play out?
1: Well, one of the interesting things about the history behind the Little House books is how common it was for farmers to really be overwhelmed by the situation that they found themselves in because very few of these small independent farmers had the capital to do what they wanted to do. So all of these homesteaders who went out to places that we now realize didn't really have enough water, were were far too arid to farm successfully without irrigation, you can see that they're really setting themselves up for failure. And Charles Ingalls actually proved up on his homestead. So did Almanzo Wilder. But that didn't really make a difference because the margin of success was so narrow. I mean, they just could not make enough money to stay on the land. And so you see them always in this position of having to work multiple jobs, in a sense. I mean, Charles Ingalls, at the beginning, was always a a hunter and trapper, and augmented his income in that way. Later on, he becomes a carpenter, and eventually that's what he ends up doing, because he can earn more money doing that. And Wilder really followed in his footsteps. She ends up taking on this whole suite of of kind of additional jobs, you know, and, and besides being a you know farm wife she has this whole little chicken business and has the various other jobs she took on including the working for the federal farm loan program in her town in Mansfield Missouri so it it just shows how over the course of american history the the small independent farmer is always really behind the eight ball they can mm-hmm. never really get ahead. And and there's there's just not enough of a cash income for the small farmer so that basically any disaster, you know, a crop failure, medical bills can wipe them out.
0: And they were wiped out, in fact, by the crash of 1929.
1: Yes. I mean, they did not, uh, the Wilders didn't lose their farm, but I think that, that Laura was very worried about that possibility because they had, at that time, a federal farm loan mm-hmm. on Rocky Ridge Farm, which was their their property. And she was terrified, I think, of, of losing that property the way that they had lost properties back in Dakota Territory. So she gathers all the money that she can. She pays off the federal farm loan, has about $50 left, and that's when she starts writing her memoir, which then becomes The Little House Books. And she really did it, in a way, for money.
0: And were the books immediately successful?
1: Uh, Little House in the Big Woods sold fairly strongly for a book during the Depression. So so it did pretty well, even though publishers were cutting back and closing their children's book departments at the time. That's why it ended up being published by Harper & Brothers. It was originally meant to be published by Knopf, but they closed their, their children's department because of the depression. So it did fairly well. Farmer Boy did not do as well. And Little House on the Prairie was, uh, I think, not quite as successful initially as Big Woods and was not um, reviewed very much because I think newspapers had also cut back on their coverage.
0: Let's talk about the politics of the books and of Rose Wilder Lane and how much of that was shared by her mother.
1: Yes. Well, I think that the, the Wilders began as Democrats. They weren't, I think, all that political until the Dust Bowl and, and the Great Depression. And Rose was not political at all. In fact, she wrote prior to the 1930s about how she just wasn't interested in politics, or even in the history of, of pioneering, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that's that's an interesting watershed because after FDR becomes president, all of a sudden she becomes very involved in criticizing him, in um, opposing the New Deal, and and the Wilders too, I think were were profoundly, uh, almost insulted and, and offended, as many rural farmers were by the new deal because it called for farmers to take land out of production to destroy livestock and essentially go contrary to everything that mm-hmm. they believed in <laughs> i want
0: to give i want to give a quote here from a letter that rose wrote to a friend in 1935 just to just to show the the level of emotion here she wrote I could kill Roosevelt with pleasure and satisfaction. If living got too much for me so that I really wanted to die, I would go to Washington first and kill that traitor.
1: Yeah, Rose really went off the deep end a little bit in the 1930s. She had a nervous breakdown and Part of this was all wrapped up in her relationship with her parents. She'd been living at the farm. She resented it. She really wanted to get away. She felt she'd made a lot of mistakes in her career. And and all of a sudden, you see her really lashing out in this conservative rhetoric, which was actually not uncommon then. I mean, you can see very similar language in a lot of uh, newspapers and, and editorials at that time. But Rose was definitely more uh, obstreperous about it than than Laura was, although Laura could herself be pretty sharp about criticizing both her neighbors and Truman and Roosevelt. But the conservative politics kind of work themselves into the books at a couple of points. There's a Fourth of July scene in Little Town on the Prairie, which is one of the, the later books, in which Rose really brings out her her distaste for government interference and and really kind of gives free reign to her conservative politics.
0: Going back and reading those books after researching all the history, how did it change your own reading experience? I'm assuming you came across these books first as a child.
1: Yes, I, I did. I read them as a kid and I, I loved them. I read them over and over again. I found them incredibly comforting, which I think many readers do, not everyone to be sure, because if you're Native American you don't read these books no. in the same way.
0: <laughs> no, but it's like this this simpler time, right? Where you you, you made do for entertainment with a, a, a ball made out of a was it a cow's stomach?
1: Oh, a pig's bladder! The pig's bladder, <laughs>
0: yes. Um, I, I I blocked some of that from my memory, but you know, yeah. So there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in in there that it sounds like is, you know, some of it is true, but a lot of it was myth too. I,
1: I think that the books remain kind of a wonderful reading experience. I mean, as simple adventure stories, they're incredible. As tales of survival, they're they're wonderful. Um, they do give you this wonderful, comforting sense of this uh, the safety and security of family, which is kind of unique in children's literature in a way. I mean, there's, there are scholars who have written about how in a lot of kids' books, the parents, and especially the father, are often just absent in, in order to give the, the children some space for autonomy. But that's, you know, in the Little House books, they're there. And that's part of why they're so wonderful, because the character of, of Pa, of Charles Ingalls, is, is just one of the, the great characters in, in children's literature. But as an adult, I think they, you can, they become very much darker. You can really see the struggles
2: mm-hmm. behind what
1: she's describing. She doesn't always bring out how terrifying these experiences were. But as an adult, you can really guess. <laughs> you can yes. see how scary it was. I mean, I think she once said that, you know, nothing is as fascinating and terrifying as, as living on the frontier. And that's really true, and it's, it's part of the fascination, I think, that the books hold for adults. And so I think that they're, you know, similar in that way to to Twain's, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. You can read those books as kids and experience them one way. But then when you read them as an adult, you you come away with much more.
0: Well, the books are obviously very multi-layered. the reading experience as well. And this is a many-layered history of those books. So, Caroline, congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. The book, again, is called Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder by Caroline Fraser, and it is reviewed this week on the... Taya Miles joins us now from Ann Arbor, Michigan. She is the author of a new book, The Dawn of Detroit, a Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Streets. Taya, thank you so much for being here.
3: Thanks, Pamela.
0: This is a book about a very different kind of Detroit from the one that most Americans and, frankly, people around the world think about. When was the period when slavery existed in Detroit? When did it begin and when did it formally end? Well,
3: it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when slavery began in Detroit. It's very possible, and I think likely, that Antoine Cadillac actually brought enslaved people, probably Native people, to Detroit when he founded the French Fort Town in 1701, but records have not documented that yet. The first good records we have actually come from the early to mid-1700s, around the time of the 1730s and 1750s. Because in 1750, the first French census was taken in Detroit and enslaved people were enumerated. So slavery lasted from at least the early to mid-1700s until actually Michigan statehood in 1837. So the numbers fell dramatically following the War of 1812, Mm -hmm. so following 1815.
0: What were the numbers like? How many slaves were there roughly in Detroit at any given moment during that period?
3: The numbers fluctuated. Sometimes they ranged in the 60s, especially in the early period of slaveholding. They got up to around 300 people by my count, perhaps even 600 people, because the records really vary. Census counts and records from the St. Anne's Catholic Church in Detroit give slightly different numbers.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And these numbers do seem small. And yet in the context of Detroit, which was a very small place, they're right. actually pretty large. So um, enslaved people were something like one out of 12 Detroiters or one out of 16 Detroiters or even one out of 10 Detroiters over this time period.
0: So our image of slavery in America and in the the Americas overall, we think of, you know, the sugar colonies in the Caribbean, and we think of cotton and tobacco in the South. But it was very different in Detroit. What did slavery look like in Detroit?
3: Well, the use of slave labor is really directed toward particular economies within particular ecologies. And in Detroit, there was going to be no chance to build some kind of plantation economy based on the production of a staple crop. Instead, in Detroit, in the Midwest, in the larger Great Lakes area, the real way that people made investments and made money and became wealthy was through getting a hold of native land and garnering native trading partners so that they could procure animal skins, especially beaver, to trade, and those trades were made uh, within what's now the continental U.S., and also very dramatically across the Atlantic, because the beaver was such a popular fur-bearing animal in this period. So the fur trade was really the context in which slavery in Detroit developed. Detroit was uh, a military town and a trading post. That's why it was founded. That's how it began. And that's what's, that, that is what fueled its rise.
0: And who dominated the fur trade? Was it the Canadians? Was it the in America? How, how did that work?
3: Well, the fur trade was really a big economic brawl between various imperial powers, European imperial powers, who were all fighting for position in what was called the New World.
1: Mm-hmm. So of course,
3: we know that it wasn't new. It was an indigenous place. But... The French, the British, the Dutch were coming in and trying to take hold of key locations and to build strategic partnerships with Native people to be able to get a hold of those spurs. Because, of course, Native hunters, and in the case of Detroit, we're talking about mostly Anishinaabe people, so Ojibwe, Odawas, Potawatomis, and also the Hurons. In Detroit... It was these native people who were the best hunters. They were the experts Mm -hmm. in procuring these furs. And so all these European powers were strategizing and struggling to get in position to build partnerships with native hunters to get those furs and to trade them. And one thing that Antoine Cadillac realized first among these European competitors was that Detroit was in a very strategic location because the Detroit River connected the Lower Great Lakes to the Northern Great Lakes, which connected into the St. Lawrence River and to the Atlantic Ocean. And what he argued when he was trying to get his fort established, when he was making his case, was that if the French could only build a post at Detroit, they would actually stand right at the gateway into all of these additional indigenous nations looking toward the West, and that they would have the first point of access to new furs.
0: They weren't just making strategic partnerships with Native Americans, they were also enslaving them.
3: <laughs> Indeed they were.
0: So so the slave population in Detroit was different also from the South insofar as it was there were African American slaves there, African brought over from Africa, and there were Native American slaves there.
3: hmm That's right. So it differs from the South in a certain period. And the South, we tend to hold in our mind as a place where slavery took place. In the South, Native people were actually enslaved first, also. But over time, the Black population dramatically overtook the Indigenous population. In the Midwest and in Detroit, the Native population was always the largest in terms of those who were enslaved. And that had to do with access. So the French who founded Detroit were coming from New France, in, in present day Canada. And they were surrounded by Native communities, Native villages, Native nations, and they had access to Indian slaves, Indigenous slaves, first because of conflicts between these Native nations, after which Native people wanting to form partnerships with the French might offer a captive as a gift. Mm -hmm. And then following that, the French, later the British, really encouraged Indigenous people to capture one another as slaves because they had a growing hunger for slave labor. It wasn't until the Revolutionary War period that the black population of enslaved people really started to grow in Detroit, and that's because British officers, British soldiers, and Native allies of theirs were actually going down into American towns in places like Kentucky raiding home Mm -hmm. and stealing black slaves and bringing them back to Detroit.
0: What were the relationships like between the Native American slaves and the black slaves? Did they consider themselves allies? Did they see their lot as very different and separate?
3: It's such an important question and one that is tricky to answer because the sources that exist about this topic are few and far between. And they are overwhelmingly produced by European, Euro-American slaveholders and officials. So we really don't have an insider perspective of enslaved people's lives in this region the way we do with the South, where we have wonderfully detailed and full-length slave narratives. But what the records do tell us is, in some cases, people of African descent, indigenous people, Who were enslaved ran away together, Hmm. which is a strong indication that they formed bonds and saw each other's future interests as being embedded. And there are also a few examples of intermarriage between Black enslaved men and Native enslaved women.
0: As a historian, given the dearth of documents, not just the slave narratives, but you said earlier the records are very spare in terms of the very early colonial period. This must have been an incredibly challenging book to write.
3: It was challenging, and there was a long time when I didn't know if there was really a book in it. And in fact, when I started the project, I worked with a number of students from Michigan, from Detroit, to try to ferret out the primary sources and a number of libraries and archives. And our first goal was really to create a public website, Mm -hmm. which would document the fact of slavery in Detroit and indicate the places where enslaved people were held and lived their lives. I wasn't sure that the project would ever go beyond that. But once we discovered that these records I mentioned earlier, that were the register of St. Anne's Catholic Church, once we discovered that those records had hundreds of mentions of enslaved people, I thought that there could be a longer narrative in it, even though that narrative would have to have gaps and have to have fissures.
0: Tell us just one story that you did come across of an individual slave, or maybe perhaps the the story of Peter and Hannah Dennison, just to give us a sense of of what these lives were like.
3: Peter and Hannah Dennison are probably the best known enslaved people of Detroit, among individuals who are familiar with this history. And that's not a large group of <laughs> folks, but, but in Detroit, there are many people who love local history, who, who go to the Detroit Historical Museum often, and they know about this family because the Denizens brought the first freedom suit in the Michigan court. And they were arguing for the freedom of their four children, who were owned by a family named the Tuckers. The Denizens hoped that Because Detroit was actually, by this time in 1807, an American place that was supposed to be defined by the dictates of the Northwest Ordinance that said it should be free, they hoped that their children would would reap the benefits of this new legislation. They took the case to court, and they were actually defended by a slaveholder named Eliza Rush. So the story actually becomes very fascinating. Because even though slavery was real in Detroit and slavery was awful and depressive in Detroit, people made surprising choices and unexpected alliances developed. This was one. Elijah Brush, a prominent Detroiter, married into an old Detroit slaveholding family, defended the Denison children and tried to press for their freedom. The case actually was not successful. And the Denison family, as a result, ran across the border, across the Detroit River, to Canada. But the really interesting thing about this story is that Detroit was always a place that felt itself to be vulnerable to attack from any number of foes real or imagined, and sometimes both. And in this period of the early 1800s, the War of 1812 was right around the corner, and there were simmering tensions between the very young United States, and Great Britain. So Detroit's nervousness led to a new role for Peter Dennison. And that was when the governor of Michigan Territory, William Hall, determined that he needed to form a new defensive force that was going to protect Detroit against what he imagined was an impending Native American attack. And he actually appointed Peter Dennison, an escaped slave, with a black family that, according to law, were still supposed to be enslaved, as the head of this militia. And Peter Dennison then went and recruited all of these formerly enslaved people of color, black men who had run away, into this militia. And so there are amazing letters that describe slaveholders on the Canadian side of the border looking across the river and seeing their own slaves marching with arms in Detroit.
0: Well, that's just one of many fascinating stories contained within this history This just little known, I guess, outside of Detroit and local Detroit history fans. The book is, again, called The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits. It's written by Taya Miles, who is also, I have to say, a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. So we know there are great things in here, Taya. Thank you so much for being here.
3: Thanks,
0: Pamela. Alexander Alter is here
4: now to talk about what's going on in the literary world. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Pamela. What is going on? So, this week I'm writing a story about this Nigerian publisher that's very interesting. They have an interesting business model, and I met with them when they were in the United States for B.E.A. many months ago. And what caught my eye about the books they're publishing is that the, the publisher is called Kosovo Republic, and they're based in Nigeria, but they export their own titles. So they distribute, they instead of selling foreign rights, they distribute them in the United States and Britain. They just started distributing books in the U.S. this year, and it sort of led me on this search. It opened a window into this burgeoning literary scene in Nigeria where, of course, there's been, you know, great writers have been exported from the Country for years, going back to Ben Okri and Wole Salinka and Chinua Achebe. But there's kind of this new generation coming up now, and there is also just this sort of very vibrant publishing industry there. There's a handful. Of new publishing houses or ones that have opened in the past decade. And I think they're looking for a broader range of genres and different types of writing. And we're seeing a lot of those books coming out here. Either, you know, U.S. publishers are finding those writers and publishing them or in the case of Casa Republic, they are actually distributing them here themselves.
0: What makes Nigeria, I mean, is it an exception among its neighbors
4: in Africa? Literature is prized there and they just seem to have this track record of nurturing writers. And and that I think that's it's a good question of why their books have, have had more of an impact abroad maybe than, than other countries. I think there's, you know, the fact of it being an English-speaking nation, or at least that's a that's sort of the language that people are educated in. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the writers I spoke to mentioned kind of the how storytelling is prized in the culture. But what's interesting, too, about this kind of latest wave, which I think is distinct from the earlier wave of, of writers that we saw coming out of the country, is it, this kind of literary renaissance that's happening now is really being led by women. The co- Co-founder of Casper Republic is a woman named Bibi Bakari Youssef. You know, she founded the company with another person, and their goal is really to like elevate women's voices in particular, although they publish many men as well. And I think, you know, other people that are sort of leading this include Lola Shonian who is a novelist, and she just founded her own publishing company, WIDA Books. Mm-hmm. She also runs a couple of literary festivals. They've become these hubs for, for young writers and things like that. Of course, there's Chimamanda Adichie, who's very well known here, and she teaches some writing workshops there. So she's sort of helping to train and encourage the next generation of young novelists. She actually, I think, worked with an author who wrote one of my favorite books of this year, which came out over the summer. It was published by Knopf in the U.S., and her name is Ayubami Adebayo, and her novel Stay With Me, I think, got a ton of critical praise when it came out here, and she studied with Chimamanda as well as Margaret Atwood. So, so far, Kasava has published a handful of books in the U.S. There are some came out this spring and a couple over the summer and some more this fall, and it's I think what's interesting about seeing these books coming out here in this country is it sort of reverses this trend that we've seen for a long time where... U.S. editors and publishers, or in some cases, British ones, are sort of the gatekeepers for what kind of books we see coming in from other countries. And in this case, we have a Nigerian publisher selecting those books. And so we're seeing a greater range, I think, of genres and stories. There's a foodie memoir that's coming out, which is called The Long Throat Memoirs. There are literary novels. One that Kosovo Republic published in the U.S. this year was called Like a Mule, Bringing Ice Cream to the Sun, which is such a great title. And that was by Sarah Lapido. Manika, and it's about an older Nigerian woman living in San Francisco. They've published a couple of thrillers here, and you know, back in Nigeria, they publish a ton of romance and children's books. So I think it's giving American readers a different kind of window into what kind of literature is being written in Nigeria. What does it mean when a publisher like Kosova
0: Press comes and rather than selling the rights to someone else here or finding a distributor here, distributes their own books? Why would they make that choice?
4: It's interesting, and it doesn't happen very often. You know, typically the way that publishing works, including with U.S. publishers, is either the publishing house or the literary agent sells foreign rights. And so what they did was they, they found a book distributor based here. It's a Minnesota-based book distributor, and they essentially print them here and distribute them here. Their print runs are small because I think they recognize that there is you know not a huge audience perhaps or they're you know they're sort of testing this model so they're the first printings range from 2000 to 5000 copies and then consortium which is the book distributor based in Minnesota gets them out to bookstores and things like that so so far they're just testing kind of a handful of titles each year not every single book that comes out in Nigeria is going to be coming out here the publishing house when it started, originally the woman who started it wanted to find Nigerian authors who were well-known in the West but weren't necessarily getting an audience at home. So she started by buying up rights to Nigerian authors who had published novels in Britain or the U.S. but didn't have an Africa-based publisher. And then gradually she began kind of acquiring original books, and she was, you know, in in the course of this, she's discovered some new talent. She was the first person to publish Teju Cole, for example. She published Every Day for the Thief, and he's gone on to become, of course, an internationally recognized writer. All
0: right. Well, plenty to look forward to from Nigeria then. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, we've got John Williams, Concepcion de Leon, and Jen Salai. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Pamela. All right, John, let's start with you. What are you reading?
5: (laughs) You know, it's funny. I have the most sort of non-holiday season book ever in front of me (laughs) what happened was we recently had a a small office move around here and i had this pile of books that have been on my desk forever and it was kind of put up or shut up time for some of them they were either going to get put on the giveaway shelf or or read so i started very arbitrarily with this short book called killer on the road violence and the american interstate by ginger strand Um, this is
0: really not a holiday friendly read no happy
5: thanksgiving everybody Mm -hmm. um it's it's a book that is part of a series called Discovering America in which historians kind of look at historians and other writers look at subjects that are maybe undercovered in American history and this one is about how the sort of the building of the American interstate system in the 1950s and and then later in the 60s coincided with you know the new notion of the kind of highway killer which is like someone who preys on people who are stranded or broken down or And so the first chapter is about Charlie Starkweather, who was the young guy who the movie Badlands is sort of based on with Martin Sheen. If you've seen that, that's a great movie. There's obviously a true crime sort of prurient appeal to this book. There's also some history about the interstate system, which is interesting. The one thing is the way they're sort of crammed together is a little bit overdetermined for me. I mean, Strand always tries to make this very kind of clear causal connection between these things when I think it's a little more random than that.
0: Like they built the highways and so the people killed?
5: Yeah, exactly. Or that, you know, America's sort of anxieties about transience and the way we can get around so easily and destroying the environment to build the highways all created, you know, all of this existential angst that sort of erupted in some ways in in these killings and and other delinquents. I want
0: want that to be like the plea, like I blame it on Route 66. (laughs)
5: Even when it's not totally reasonable, it's very readable because, you know, it, she's just constantly cycling between the two stories. And it's, it's pretty interesting and it's fairly short, so I should be done by the time Christmas rolls around. And I'll have some more <laughs> cheerful holiday reading for everybody. Concepcion, do you have anything more uh, seasonal?
6: I don't know if it's seasonal, though. I, I think the part that I'm at in the book right now is actually, like, around a holiday. But I'm reading The Beautiful Things That Have Embarrassed by Danao Mengistu. It's about an Ethiopian immigrant that lives in Washington, D.C. and owns a sort of failing grocery store or bodega. And it's sort of about how he's still trying to find belonging and and a place to call his own and a family away from home, essentially. And I just think it's quite lovely because when it started out, it it seems his language i think is very simple and at first i was like i don't get what the big deal is like it's just a normal book and he's just narrating the story but he really has some really lovely and beautiful passages that are really gripping and um very heartbreaking and i almost think that I wouldn't say there's an element of magical realism, but sometimes it feels like magical realism and how quickly things happen and how they – how you don't realize that he's moving from one time period to another or from one sort of um, action to another. Mm. And I think it gives it
0: a really nice element. It's interesting because recently I was having a conversation with someone and we were talking about the lack of Washington, D.C. novels that weren't about politics, that were just Mm. about all the rest of life that goes on there. And it sounds like – and we thought that there was a real dearth, but it sounds like this isn't – Example. Way back in my publishing
5: days, I tried to acquire that book to publish it. Because I this really, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I oh, read that's so it's, interesting. Because it was his first novel. So it was a debut yeah, and I was. didn't know his voice yet. And it was, you know, he also, the character kind of gets to know the rest of this emigre community, right, in D.C., these other people who are kind of sharing stories from their past and yes, hanging out at the exactly. bodega. Exactly. It's a yes. really warm group portrait sort of.
6: It is, yeah. Seeing him interact, you know, with other immigrants, but also with other African-American people that live in, the, in his community. Part of the narrative is that um, there's a white woman who comes and moves in with her biracial daughter and he sort of develops a friendship with them. And it's sort of interesting to see um, how that friendship develops. And there's one scene where she goes to his apartment and the way that he sees every single thing differently because mm-hmm. she owns this like beautiful brown store and it's like six stories. And it's, you know, very beautiful and vast. And his apartment is just very small and cramped. And kind of the um, the juxtaposition of those two descriptions is really, really. Um, yeah, striking. I know you still have
5: some ways to go, but it, it's it's yeah. also like very much a book about gentrification and about how neighborhoods are changed yeah. by people who have money coming in and kind of renovating them.
6: Yeah, I can see that. I haven't gotten fully into it though. I mean, yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but it's jumping back and forth in the timeline, and so I'm trying to figure out what's going on a little
5: bit. This is good. Um, I love a lot to talk about around the office. Yeah.
6: <laughs> yeah, but it's I'm really enjoying it so far. How about
0: you, Jen? You've got brief. I I've it. got
7: another <laughs> short book. So
6: last last week we I,
7: I was talking about Devils in Daylight by Junichiro Tanizaki, and as it turns out, I didn't realize it, but when my husband saw I was reading that, he said that he had read a book of Tanizaki's in one of his aesthetic classes in college. So, your he, husband's an artist. My husband is an artist, <laughs> and he teaches art and painting. And um, so, he gave me this to read, uh, and it's called "In Praise of Shadows," and it's basically like a long essay on "In Praise of Shadows" and also on Japanese aesthetics. And um, this was written in the 1930s, I believe. And essentially, Tanizaki sets up this dichotomy between what he sees as Western aesthetics, which really emphasize light, clarity, brightness, and Japanese aesthetics, which he says emphasize the shadows and sort of see beauties and beauty in the shadows. And it's really beautifully written. And the way that it moves from, essentially, he talks at a certain point about toilets and monasteries and the problem with tiles and bathrooms and too much porcelain in in Western bathrooms and how if he were able to build his fantasy bathroom, it would be essentially all wood. I knew he would choose wood. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it would be wood
0: because it's warm. Yeah, why is there so much porcelain in
7: Western (laughs) bathrooms? He does does say that there is a practical purpose to that. Um, But then he also looks at different forms of Japanese theater And um, how kabuki theater, which he says probably in the past before electrical lighting, would have presented as something very different and mysterious, he says, in the age of electrical lighting, is just totally vulgar. And uh, no theater, which emphasizes the shadows and doesn't put as much emphasis on white makeup, is um, something that he holds out as this ideal And uh, he actually has a phrase in it where he calls, I think he says, the evils of excessive illumination. And so near the end, he also admits that he himself, I think he must have been in his 50s maybe when he wrote this book, that he recognizes that his book itself is infused with a lot of nostalgia and that old people are often nostalgic for a past and then he goes on to rail against the evils of traffic lights.
0: All right. <laughs> so two quick things. No theater is n- no N-O-H. N-O-H. Okay. For our listeners. Yes. And I have to wonder what he would make of the modern Japanese toilet with the warmed seats. Or I feel mo- like there would be conflict for him. Right. But the book is, is
7: fascinating. I mean, there, there it's also, is.
5: It's very short. It's very for very short. People looking for a quicker.
7: Yes, it's very very short. It's it looks like something hundred... you would be assigned in an aesthetics class. In, in an college. aesthetics mm-hmm. class, exactly. It's very short. I mean, I will say that the one thing that sort of concerns me, and I don't know enough about his actual life story, is that there is definitely a hint of hypernationalism in this <laughs> book. And I think he died in the fifties, so I am a little bit curious about his actual life story. But
5: Pamela, the table in front of you is empty.
0: I've been
5: <laughs> I know you were traveling. Yeah, you were pretend. traveling.
0: Yes, I've been exposed. Um mm-hmm. I was at the Miami Book Fair, which I try to go to every year. It's really a fantastic book fair in that the the community really comes out for it. There are lots of enthusiastic readers in Miami. There's a lot of Spanish language programming and Spanish language book sales. They have a big schedule of events for kids as well as for adults. And I think most authors, you know, really like to go down to Miami and to Miami Beach. So they get a really nice lineup. So there were a lot of big names there. And it was especially impressive this year because due to the hurricane, they lost about, you know, three weeks really worth of organizing and and programming. So um, it was nice to see that there was a big crowd down there. But it is hard to be an ambitious reader because when you're there, because everything looks good and you're constantly distracted and they they have all of these great book stands selling things. Um, So I did get a little distracted, but I am Reading still Elif Batuman's book The Idiot, which is really enjoyable. I, I, I haven't figured out what the time frame is yet. I'm about halfway through, and we've just finished with her freshman year, so I can't tell. I thought first it was going to be a year in the life of college. Now I'm wondering if it's going to be sort of four years of college, or if it will be something else entirely <laughs> unexpected. Just through um,
5: sophomore, and then there will be a sequel. Yeah. Yes. Junior and senior. yes.
0: <laughs> what she does, I think, in addition to being very funny, what she does very well is capture the mindset of being a college freshman, which is a kind of unpleasant and uncomfortable mindset. I mean, it's exciting because everything is so new. But she's so incredibly naive in these pages. And it's sort of, you know, it's it's like a little bit of cringe humor, you know, where you're like, no, don't do that. <laughs> and she also has a really kind of faltering romance that has not yet come to any kind of fruition. But it really does bring you back to those painful days of early early college.
5: Well, we're going to need an update at least on the relationship, the faltering relationship before you get into whatever you're reading next. Yeah, next
0: I, will, I will well, you know what? We all have a very nice long holiday weekend coming up, so <laughs> yes. there'll be plenty of time for that. Thanks guys. Thank Thanks, you. Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.